Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there's no accident that chapter 13 falls between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Now that you know the context of Corinthians, you realize hopefully what Paul is doing here. And he's trying to show them the difference in being attached to a gift and being attached to the giver. Huge difference. Matter of fact, the title of this whole chapter that I've just entitled for my own benefit, and perhaps it'll help you, is The Absolute Proof of a Surrendered Life. The Absolute Proof. The Absolute Proof of a Surrendered Life. And this is the second part of a message we began the last time. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrendered my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now to enter into this this morning, I want us to stop and think a minute isn't it interesting the fleshly means that we go to to satisfy ourselves spiritually? Now, what do I mean by that? You see, when we're not yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, then we are going to seek to satisfy our flesh. Although the Scripture says that flesh is never satisfied, it still hungers for the sensual and the emotional ways of being satisfied. I saw a bumper sticker one time and had on the back of it, if it feels good... Do it. And that's exactly the way we are when we're not living surrendered to Christ. We're living in our emotions. We're living in, in, in the sensual part of our lives. And all, As in Corinth, as we have already studied, there were a million different fleshly ways to make yourself seem or appear to be spiritual. Many things you can do. Many experiences you can have, not only to make you look spiritual to some, but even look super spiritual. But you see, chapter 13 just stands in the way of people who want to parade in front of others and say, I'm spiritual because I've had this experience or I have this gift. 1 Corinthians 13 stands there and stares at them and says, no way unless one thing is prevalent in your life. If it's not there, then whatever else you're doing is nothing more than pure, unadulterated flesh. God has put a foolproof method into the equation that no one can get around. We're spiritual only 
when this is found in our life. And by the way, it's not being having a perfect church attendance, as some people would tell you. I heard a man say on radio right here in this city, he says, if you're not in church on Sunday night or Wednesday or Sunday morning, then in no way can you say you love Jesus. I say, garbage. That's not the test. Not how many people you witness to. No, sir, that's not it. It's not how big your ministry is. It's not how involved you are at church. It's something else. It's something that God has put into this equation that no man in his flesh can come up with it's the only thing that satisfies us. It's the only thing that meets the needs of others. And it's something only God can produce. What is it? And we talked about it last week as we introduced this chapter. It's love. God's love produced in and through us by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, why would it be anything else? Love is the scripture's simplest definition and description of the character of God. 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. He's not like love. He's not filled with love. He is love. He is love. If we want God to be seen in us, then His love must be seen also in us. That's the only way. That's the only way we can show anyone that we're filled with the Spirit of God. That's the only way we can prove that we're truly spiritual. Doesn't matter our experience, doesn't matter our knowledge, doesn't matter our gifts, it doesn't matter our talents. It's got to have this love wrapped around it or it is not spiritual. That's what God's Word has to tell us. The love is foolproof. This is a foolproof love. You know, one of the ways the police can find out who someone is and who done it, <laughs> pardon English, but how they find that out is by testing one's fingerprint. Did you know that? You know that we're so uniquely made that your fingerprint and my fingerprint are different? That's amazing to me. That's how the FBI can have on file the fingerprints of all of America and know immediately by seeing a fingerprint who that person is. It's a foolproof way of proving who you are. Well, in the same sense, in the spiritual sense, God has to have his fingerprint on what goes on in our life in order for us to be able to glorify Him and to prove to others that we're spiritual. And His fingerprint is like no other fingerprint. His fingerprint is marked with this beautiful characteristic that we have talked about called love. No believer can manufacture it, as I talked about. It, it is this love that motivates the surrendered life. It's something that we're rooted and grounded in, Ephesians tells us. Now, it'd be helpful at this particular point, to make sure we don't think of this love as some fluffy feeling. You know, Nashville <laughs> presents love as a fluffy feeling, but, 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 feel, but love, this kind of love is far beyond that. In the New Testament, there are two words that qualify this kind of love predominantly all the way through the New Testament. Agapao, which is the verb, and then the word agape, which is the noun which is the word referring to God's love. The verb agapao is found in secular Greek writings. You can find it here or there, and very rarely. However, the noun agape, or agape, however you want to translate it, is first used in the Septuagint. This is so interesting to me. It's found in 2 Samuel 13, 15. And the, the Septuagint, what is the Septuagint? Let me explain that. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so when they took it and put it into Greek, that's the first time you find the, the noun. 
that the word agape, it, it's not the word that's found in any kind of secular writings at all. 2 Samuel 13, 15, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4, Jeremiah, chapter 2, and verse 2. Now, the point being is that this word agape has absolutely, agape has no understanding in the world. It doesn't have any origin in the world. The world without Christ does not even know what you're talking about when you speak of it. This is found only in the heart and the bosom of God and his people. So it's a, it's a Christian word. It's a God word that the world could never understand, not even in their language. Agape or agape is God's own love manifested in the life of the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost and was manifested in the way that he gave himself on Calvary. Now you know John 3, 16, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but what? Have everlasting life. God so agapao, loved the world. You see, that's, that's the word that comes right out of the very essence of who God is. It's his own love. 1 John 4, 7 says, all love. And he uses the word agape, is of God. And the word of means out of God. Agape does not have its origin in man, but it has it in God. When it's manifested in a believer, it's when God is brought down to man. It's in other words, when, when you're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you, it's God coming down, although he lives in us, but it's being manifested through us to touch others that are around us. It is this love in man produced by the Holy Spirit that changes and melts the barriers that men have put up around themselves. You can't love some people in this world. I guarantee you, you can't. You go out in the morning, you try to love every brother that God puts in your way, and by noon you'll find a brother that you didn't even know existed. And you're going to say, God, I can't love this person. And God's going to say, I never said you could. That's why I produce in you a quality that you have already seen you can't produce yourself. It's the fruit of my spirit working in you. And surrender to Christ is the only way it's appropriated in a Christian life. You, I mean, you can get up in church. You can have Sunday school pens that fall, you fall over when you walk into church. You can, you can usher. You can deke. You can Sunday school. You can do whatever you want to do. And if this love is not there, you've been playing a silly game with God from the very beginning. This love has to be there. Well, there is no ministry. It has to be there. Well, there is no effect. It has to be there. Well, there is no gift. That's what Paul's trying to tell them. And if you're going to connect yourself to a gift and you're going to divide churches over it, if you're going to connect yourself to an emotional experience and divide churches over it and split families over it and split relationships over it, then it's obvious this love is just not there. That's his point. When the believer surrenders to Christ, Galatians 5, 23 says, the fruit of his spirit is love. That's the most interesting thing to me, how God can live in us. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, maybe I've just got a mind that you say, Wayne, we're way ahead of you. I wish you'd catch up. Well, I don't know why, but, but I'm serious. I don't know about that old, but I still am overwhelmed that God lives in me. Now, when I woke up this morning, I didn't feel God living in me. Did you feel God living in you? All I felt was I needed three more hours of sleep when I woke up. I, I didn't feel like God lived in me. But the Word says He comes and puts His Spirit within us. The Spirit is going to manifest the life of Christ through us. And that's what the Word of God 
says. It's amazing to me how that happens. Uh, it's like, matter of fact, it's kind of like dough and leaven. If you take dough and you take leaven, neither one of them are fit for food. But you put the two together, and the dough is transformed by the leaven. Now, leaven used in a different way than Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians talking about sin. It works the opposite way, too. But here I'm just simply talking about two ingredients. And by themselves, they don't meet the need. But put together, there's a transformation. And it's like God doesn't throw away my personality. Are you not glad of that? I mean, isn't it wonderful? It's not uniformity, but it's unity in the body of Christ. That God has all kinds of different personalities. We've got them on our staff. Don't we, Tim? We've got everything you can think of on our staff. But God's life infused into that personality, like the, like the leaven that's been put into the dough, transforms that life, and he doesn't throw away our personality. He just infuses himself in it and manifests his love through it. That's an incredible picture to me. That's the Christian life right there. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13, not today, but in very shortly, we're going to see the characteristics of that love that he puts within us that is foreign to anything our flesh has ever understood. Agape literally transforms the very whole of our life, every area of our life. But when we refuse to respond and surrender to Christ, it is shut down and does not function, although our flesh can continue to perform in religious ways. The spirit no longer is producing that love. So it becomes the test. It is the litmus test. It is the, it is the acid test. It is the foolproof test of whether or not a person is spiritual and truly walking with God. The Corinthian believers had spiritual gifts. Chapter 1, verse 7 says they lacked in no gift. They had right doctrine for the most part. They had gotten a little confused on some things, as the chapter 11 and verse 2 told us. But love was absent. And how do we know love was absent in the church of Corinth? Because there was division in the church. And when you have division and strife in a family, in a church between believers, love is no longer present. Because that love unifies and edifies. It does not divide. This tells us all we need to know about every experience they had, about every emotion they chased after, about every gift that they thought was the greater gift. It tells us everything we need to know. Take the love out of it. It's nothing more than religious flesh. That's all we're dealing with with the church of Corinth. We know by the, 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 by the way Paul addresses certain things, what it was that was enamoring their flesh. Speaking in an unknown tongue was very definitely a pursuit of the Corinthians. And we know that from Already from chapter 12, we, we get a glance at it in chapter 13, and then the whole of chapter 14 is spent dealing with it. Not only that, prophesying was another thing that was enamoring their flesh. And, and supernatural faith, the kind that will do miracles and remove mountains. You see, the ordinary was no longer good enough for them. It never is for the flesh. They have to go after something to prove to themselves that they're spiritual when in their hearts they know they're not. Or the extraordinary deeds that one might do. Those kinds of things were what they were looking for, the things that stood out, the things that stirred a crowd, the things that, that caused emotions to be moved. They even held those who had those kind of experiences or shown those kinds of deeds, they held them in high esteem as if they had the greater gifts. And Paul identifies their problem in verse 31. 
of chapter 12. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gift. And it sounds contradictory, but as I shared with you, I do not believe that it's a correct translation. The indicative and the imperative forms are the identical in the Greek. So it's translated in the imperative. But if you put it in the indicative, it makes all the sense in the world to the context. But you are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. And they already have, have told us what the greater gifts they think are. And he said, that's your problem. But Paul says, I want to show you a better way. I want to show you a better way. The word for show is the word that means to point out, to help or cause a person to see something they can't see. It's used of a teacher who has a group of students in front of him and he, he looks at them and he sees how thick-headed they are and he says, oh man, let me try to point out something to you. I want to show you something that for some reason you can't see. I want you to learn from it. That's that word show. I want to show you a better way. Actually, the better translation of that, I think the King James has it, it's a more excellent way. New American Standard translates it with two words, but there are three Greek words there. There's the word used to show the condition of something. There's the word used to show that something is far above average, excellent. And it's the word way does not mean direction, but the word way here refers to the manner or the, of something, how something is done. I want to show you a more excellent way of living. Paul says, I want to point out to you a more excellent way to live than to go around chasing gifts and experiences and priding yourself as if you have the greater gifts. He said, I want to show you a better way. Now, by implication, not by ex it's not explicit. The explicit thing of chapter 13 is, just, is, is showing us what love is. But if you know the Word of God, by implication, it has to be stop surrendering yourself and attaching yourselves to gifts, but start attaching yourselves to the giver. Why do I know that? Because only when you're filled with the Spirit of God can His fruit be manifested in your life. That which He's describing can only happen if you're living a surrendered life. So that's what He's saying to them. Stop attaching yourself to the flesh and attach yourself to the Lord Jesus. Don't attach yourself to the gift. Attach yourself to the giver. Now let's just see as he enters, as we enter into chapter 13, we won't get that far today, but we'll get a little ways. Let's just see what he begins to say. First of all, Paul tells them that a language without love is nothing. It's an irritating noise. That's all it is. A language without love is an irritating noise. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's interesting to me what Paul does here. He models the very love that he's telling them about in the way he approaches the subject that, that he starts off with. When he says, if I speak with the tongues or languages of men and of angels. You know, if I, as I've said, if you'll pay attention real carefully to what he's addressing, you see what they're dealing with. That's why Paul did. You know that the book of Romans, Paul was such a lawyer that the book of Romans was used in law school for years to teach lawyers how to build a case. Paul's unique like that. He's not like Peter. He's not like James. He's not like John. He's unique to himself. And when he does something, <laughs> he so builds his case that he doesn't have to say anything. You've already got the conclusion. That's the way Paul writes every letter that he writes. And so he's building his case. He's been building it for a whole chapter now, and now he really begins to put the, the extra paragraphs in to, to prove his point. And if you'll just look at what he addresses, you'll see what they're dealing with. 
Paul in chapter 14 takes the problem of tongues head on. In other words, he starts off, he says, I speak with the tongues, languages of men and of angels. Now, you must not rid these verses from their context. He, this is one of the severe problems they're dealing with. The first up on his list are these languages that people are enamored with. And in chapter 14, he takes the problem head on. Every time in chapter 14, to give you a little preview, that he mentions them, it's a tongue. And every time he mentions himself in chapter 14, it's tongues plural, languages plural. Paul was a missionary. Paul had to speak in languages that others would never have to speak in because he was dealing with groups that did not understand the native languages that he had grown up with. But you see, when they spoke, it was a tongue. Never tongues, never tongue, a tongue. And by referring to, to a tongue, <coughs> you know, have you ever taken these antihistamines type things? And what they do, they help your nose from running, but they dry up your throat so bad. <laughs> you can hardly say anything. But, ah, excuse me, I'm sorry. Every time he speaks of himself, but when he speaks of a tongue, he's referring to the gibberish that they're experiencing and they're calling it spiritual. That's a, one of the keys. Some people, I've had people walk up to me, well, Wayne, if, if, if speaking in a tongue, a gibberish is wrong, then why does Paul say he speaks in tongues more than they do? <laughs> That's your distinction right there. He speaks in languages. They're speaking, and even in most translations, it has written in italics unknown to try to get across the point that he's talking about, about a particular kind of tongue that nobody has ever heard. Well, he tells them in chapter 14 that what they were doing Speaking in a tongue makes no sense at all. If an unbeliever came to their services and everyone was speaking in gibberish, he said those unbelievers would call you as if you were insane. Matter of fact, this gibberish was something that in no way could edify the body. How could it edify the body? Nobody could understand it. Plus it destroyed God's purpose of witnessing to others because, there, again, there was no understanding. But in chapter 13, whereas in 14 he attacks the problem, in chapter 13 he does not. In fact, he models this love, as I said. He puts himself on the spot. And he says, all right, let me, let me put myself up front. I'm not going to put you out there. Let me examine myself in my speaking. He says, in the matter of speaking in languages, let me examine myself. He says, if I, Paul, speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, he uses two examples, and he, he jumps from the gibberish to the known language. Now, you... You know already, if something is true of a known language, how much more is it true of an unknown language? And he said, hey, you know, I don't speak this way, but when I speak in the tongues of men, and then secondly, when I speak in the tongues of angels, if I do, he says. He's putting a hypothetical situation here. Both are languages that are spoken and understood. Thank you, Tim. I've loved your servant heart. I appreciate it. Now, y'all just hang on just a second. I'm going to drink it. Oh. And you wish you had some, but you're not getting it. <laughs> now, the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, now listen to me, are both understandable languages. Whenever do you find an angel speaking in Scripture that you don't see a language that somebody could understand? Always. Just like when God spoke. But here's the difference to me. The tongues of men are naturally learned. The tongues of angels are supernaturally given. Now, if Paul says, okay, let me, let me take an examination here. Let's create a hypothetical situation. Let's just say I speak in the known understandable tongues of men. Or, or let's just say I speak in the revealed understandable tongues of angels, you see. 
Now, some people think here he's saying, if I speak with eloquence but have not love. Well, that's probably true, but it's not what the text is saying. You can't read this verse from the text. The context is so, it rules here. And the, the context has been a problem they're dealing with. Why would he bring up tongues first? If he, and he spends a whole chapter on it in chapter 14. I wholly hardly disagree with the fact that he's just talking about eloquent speech. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to examine not an unknown language. We'll do that in 14. I'm going to examine a known language in chapter 13, whether it be the tongues of men or whether it be the tongues of angels. Now, the tongues of men are the languages of mankind. There are as many languages as there are peoples, as there are nations, as there are tribes. You might want to write down Revelation 7, verse 9. We've quoted it before in chapter 12, but just to remember he says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Now, listen, look how he does this. From every nation and all tribes and peoples, and then he says, and tongues. And there's no, no way that that word tongue can mean anything but the, the languages that bound those people of, of nations and tribes together. And when Paul refers to tongues of angels... We have no scriptural phrase to go back to, but as I've said already, I believe he's talking about the supernaturally revealed tongue, which obviously can take place. And so, therefore, that can happen in a, in a Christian's life. The languages that perhaps they've never learned, but is revealed to them at a particular moment. Paul says, let me examine my own life first. Suppose I speak in the known, understandable languages of men. Or suppose I speak in the revealed languages of angels. But then he comes to his point. That's not even his point. His point is, but do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or, or as a clanging cymbal. Paul is, Paul is willing to be examined himself. And I think what he's doing by implication, he's saying, are you willing to examine yourself? Okay, Corinthians, I'm up first. I'll go first. Let's examine Paul. Is love present when I speak? And if it's not present when I speak, whether it be the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, then I'm nothing more than a bunch of noise and no wonder you're not listening to me. You see, there's no love in Corinth. No love at all. If speaking in a language that can be understood without love is a noise, if speaking in a language that can be understood and revealed only by angels is understood, but without love is only noise, then what in the world by implication is speaking in a language you have never heard with no love? Does it not stand to reason what Paul is doing here as the lawyer that he is? The words noisy gong or clanging cymbal are interesting terms. They're almost identical. The word noisy is the, the term denoting loud noise. I don't know, maybe I'm just 55 and you know that, but you know, I didn't. for some reason music has gotten louder and louder. When we lived out in Ottawa, I was sitting in the house one day and I kept hearing something that I could feel. I felt it before I heard it. And it was like a kaboom, 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 kaboom. I'm thinking, the washer has broken. <laughs> or the dryer is on the blink. And I'm trying to think, what in the world is causing that noise? And it took me a while. I'm serious. It took me a lot of concern too because I didn't know what in the world it was until it dawned on me. Now listen to me. An acre away at least. I mean, the houses are not next to each other when I used to live out in Ottawa. It was way over. The young boy that lived there was upstairs and had his stereo on and his windows were shut. 
And I'm sitting in my house over how far away is an acre, sitting in my house in my den, which is in the back of the house, watching a ball game, and I can feel it before I even heard it. Loud noise. Like when you think when the people come to sing and they're young, and all the adults say, that's too loud. That's irritating my ears. You know why it does? Because you're wearing a hearing aid like me. And yeah, it'll do that if you're wearing a hearing aid. Loud. The word for gong is something that's metal. The sound of something beating a piece of metal. Boy, that's fun. Can you do that for a while, Wayne? I think that'll just relax my system. Just beat on a piece of metal for a while. Well, the next phrase is almost the same thing. Clanging symbol. By using both phrases, it's very clear what Paul's trying to talk about in the irritation one becomes when he speaks without that love being present. Uh, a symbol was a plate of hollow metal. You know, you've seen a symbol that's kind of beveled a little bit. When it was hit, it made a sound that harmonized with nothing. <laughs> it was just a loud, irritating noise. One of the things I've been doing as a grandfather, and I love being a grandfather, and I, I love my grandchild, and I haven't spoken about Holland for a while, so I thought I would just take this opportunity. How well it relates to the message, I'm not real sure, but I'm going to take a stab at it. All of the gifts that I buy Holland, I have a little mean, mean streak in me, a little meanness in me. You didn't know that, but it's just a, my mother and father have great crowns in heaven right now for raising me. But when I give her gifts, I kind of think of what <laughs> might irritate. So I've given her, I buy them at, at Cracker Barrel. If you're going to buy your, your grandchildren gifts, Cracker Barrel's a good place because they got all these little noise-making gifts. It's not just a little bear. It's a little bear that has a Santa Claus suit on and a, and a guitar. And when you, when you hit the button, it goes, and sings a Christmas carol. And at the end of it, it says, Happy New Year! As loud as you can hear it. I gave her another one. It was a monkey. That was voice, uh, sound motivated. You know, if you walk, not sound, but motion motivated. If you walk by it, it does this. It says, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> Dinah got in on it and gave Holland a little doll that says, and it's the worst thing you ever heard in your life. And you just touch it and you go, rah, rah, and you got different tracks it can go on. Stephanie called me one day. She says, Dad. And I said, Stephanie, so good to hear from you. Dad. What? Quit giving us those kinds of gifts. I said, why? She said, it's driving me nuts all morning long. I love you. I love you. Happy New Year. She said, I've had to take the batteries out of that thing. I said, why? She said, it's so loud and it's so irritating. Now, I hope I've gotten the point across of what Paul's trying to say. Paul says a person that stands up and speaks in whether it's a known language or an unknown language. If that love is not there, he's nothing more than an irritating, loud noise. Well, I tell you what, that'll take you back to your prayer closet real quick. Paul says, I'm willing to examine myself. Are you willing to examine yours? If I speak, if I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, and there's no love there, I'm nothing more than a lot of irritating noise. You wonder sometimes why people won't listen. Maybe it's not because of their listening. Maybe it's because of our speaking. I don't know. I know it goes both ways. Well, can you examine yourself today in your speaking? Is the love there? Is the love there? You see, 
That's the infallible proof that God has, the foolproof method. Well, secondly, he says, as he follows along the line of the same, the same way of thinking, prophecy without love is nothing. A little changes it just a little bit. Nothing is my illustration of that. Nothing is a zero with the lid kicked off. It is nothing. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, isn't it interesting how flesh distorts anything that's reasonable? It takes, for instance, already we've seen in Corinth how it took understandable communicative tongues and so distorted it to where it's so confusing that nobody can even understand it. That's what flesh will do to it. But flesh will also take something like prophecy and distort it to the point of misuse. And so Paul, instead of getting into that argument, he simply says, however they want to interpret him, if I have the gift of prophecy. Now the question is, did Paul have the gift of prophecy? If anybody in the New Testament had it, Paul had it. Paul, you see, prophecy in its truest form, he didn't say he was a prophet. That's different. That's the office. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy, prophecy in its truest form is telling forth the truth of God's Word. In its truest form. Now, we saw two other definitions of it that we dealt with in chapter 12. The foretelling of future and also this instantaneous I've got a word for you that God gave to me type thing. But the truest form of prophecy, the word prophetimi, means to speak forth or before someone, to tell forth the word of God. And once again, Paul puts himself to the test. He says, do I have the gift of being able to tell forth the word of God? That's kind of like asking if Billy Graham had a quiet time. Does he have the gift of telling forth the word of God? Does he ever? As a matter of fact, he spoke in one place and they said the gods have come to visit us. And the two gods that they mentioned are the, were the ones who were gifted in speaking and eloquence and oratory. They thought that their supernatural pagan gods had come to visit them because of the tremendous ability Paul had of telling forth the word of God. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 1. Remember what he says there. 1 through 4. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul had already shown them how he had come to them. He says in verse, and he lets them examine him as he does it. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now listen, I was with you. And by the way, he could have spoken with such eloquence that it would have been, anybody that didn't have enough intelligence to hear him could not even understood him. Most intelligent man in scripture other than Christ. He says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the what? The spirit and of power. Now that tells you right there. If it was in the demonstration of the spirit, the love was there. Because the love first produces, or the spirit first produces the love before it manifests any other power. That's the most powerful thing the spirit of God manifests in our life. Paul says he's the greatest preacher in the New Testament. He says it in a, in a hypothetical way. Let's say I have the gift of prophecy. He says, if there's no love, then I'm nothing. So why would you go around and put people who foretold or whatever they said they had to get the prophecy, why would you think that they're more spiritual than everybody else when there's not a bit of love, not an ounce of love in all of Corinth? Do you see his underlying thought here as a lawyer presenting his case? Well, he says, I'm nothing, nothing. By now, if I was a Corinthian, I think I'd be getting it clear. I think it'd be coming across pretty clear where Paul was headed, putting himself up front 
and showing that all of these gifts and experiences and abilities are absolutely nothing and irritating noise unless the love is present within them. And remember now, that love is not a fluffy, emotional, flippant feeling. It's an intent on doing for others what is spiritually beneficial for them. That's that divine intent that's in it. That's God in a person. Doesn't always say the things everybody wants to hear when it's love. But it says it in such a way that it'll be spiritual beneficial to the hearers. Language without love is nothing. Prophecy without love is nothing. And then thirdly, he says, knowledge without love is nothing. He groups a whole bunch of them here in verse 2, and all of them fit in that little category, I am nothing. The noise comes when I speak and have no love. Verse 2, I'm nothing if these things are there without the love of God. If I have the gift of prophecy, and then he says, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now again, a hypothetical situation. He said, I'm going to put myself up. Let's examine me. The word for know is the word eva. It means to know intuitively. If It's to know by perception. It's uh, an inward knowledge that only comes from God. It's, it's not learned as much as it's perceived. Now, the next word completes the thought. If I, if I have a perception and a divine intuitive knowledge of all mysteries. Now, that's an interesting word, mysterion. In Scripture, when you find it in the New Testament, it always refers to the hidden things of God that man's mind in no way can discover. That's what it refers to. You, you don't discover the mysteries of God. They are revealed by God's Spirit. But Paul says, what if I had this? Let's put myself up front now. I'm going to stand up front. What if I had the ability <laughs> to understand and have intuitive knowledge of the mysteries of God, all of them. What if I had that? Now you see, why would he say something like that? Because that's an absurd statement. Nobody has that. But there were those in Corinth, because of those experiences, because of those things that the Corinthians were looking at as the greater gifts, who came across as if they had a hotline to God that nobody else had. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody in your walk right now that has that kind of attitude and you sort of steer away from them? Raise your hand. Anybody in here know anybody like that? <laughs> Most of you shaking your head. Chicken, raise your hand. <coughs> Me too. Me too. Matter of fact, when I see them coming, I'm thinking, well, Lord, I think they think if there's a vacancy in the Trinity, they'd like to apply for it. Because they come across pseudo-spiritual. I have intuitive knowledge for all the mysteries of God. And if you want to know them, just ask me. Apostle Paul says, all right, you want to play that game? What if I had all, and I don't, it's an absurd thing, it's a hypothetical, but what if I had these things? He puts himself in this absurd arena for the purpose of examination. Suppose I have the ability to perceive the mysteries of God, even if it were possible. Oh, you know, isn't it amazing the pride that comes through knowledge anyway? People get a little bit of knowledge and they think they know it all. Isn't it amazing? It's, a, it's exactly the flesh tendency of all of us. You, I went to a Bill Gothard seminar. When, I'm not picking on Bill. Matter of fact, on tape, I won't even say that name because somebody who's tender towards him will think I'm blasting him, and I'm not at all. There were 32 hours, I think it is, isn't it, Rick, something like that, of intense teaching. I found out 17 reasons why immorality can be a problem. And I found out 22 reasons why you do this or that. I found out 17 other reasons ways of stopping it in your family and I 
You, you get so much knowledge in 32 hours, much of which, by the way, must always put in the grid of Scripture. No man in a conference has it all. But people who go somehow think he does, but he doesn't, he doesn't present himself that way. That's the perception, though, about many people. But I'll tell you what, I came home from that conference. <laughs> I wanted to teach a course on spiritual maturity. Just ask me. You want to know about this? <laughs> I got a file photo on that. I've got all, man. I got a hotline. You want to know the answer? I got it. That's the, that's the attitude of flesh. But that's pride. I'm, glad, I'm grateful for one thing. And all the things I've learned over the years, the one thing God has shown me over and over again is what I'm not apart from Him. And He has a way of orchestrating my life to where I fail so miserably and so bad, I don't know if I know anything when I get off my knees repenting and asking God to forgive me. Thank, I thank God for that. Because there's some people who think they've got it all together. Well, the spiritual pride. The word mysteries again is used over in chapter 14. I want to show you the connection. It illustrates the prideful way in which some of these people were going about some of these emotional experiences. Chapter 14 and verse 2, I want to show you how it's used there. For one who speaks in, and notice this, a tongue, not tongues, a tongue, does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands. You see, a tongue is a language that nobody's ever spoken before. It came right out of their pagan practices, practices the oracles of Delphi, 30 miles down the road. But in his spirit, little s, he speaks what? Mysteries, mysteries. And to make certain, Paul has made himself clear of the arrogance that goes along with this absurd situation. He, he, he includes, not only if I have, if I can understand all mysteries, and then he goes on and says, and have all knowledge. Boy, this is referring to superior intelligence, one that knows everything. He unlocks the mysteries of God and he has all knowledge. Now, whoa, if you want to, Corinthians, you think that's good, let me put a hypothetical situation. I know you're headed this way, and I know you're almost there, sir. You're doing really well. But if you ever get to this spot of having all knowledge and all this, he said, I want to tell you about a man who can get to that place, but he has no love. He says, I want to tell you about him. He is absolutely what? Nothing. Nothing. What? Well, that ought to pop the balloon of somebody who thinks that understanding mysteries and having knowledge is, is, a, is a signal of spirituality. He said, man, if you could put yourself into the arena that you had the knowledge of all mysteries, if you, if you could understand all the different things of God, if you don't have this love, you're nothing. Love must be there or it isn't God. Period. No more questions. Class dismissed. Let's go home. That's it. That's what Paul's saying. The love's not there. <laughs> you, you can be so spiritual that the world would pour out to a coliseum to see you do your thing. But if that love is not produced in your life, all of those people are just as deceived as you are. You're nothing, and, you're, and what, you're, what you're doing is nothing more than irritating noise. Well, our time's running out. Now, we didn't quite finish where I wanted to head today because there's one more area of giving your body to be burned. I mean, what great sacrifice. And he says that's useless if the love is not there. But how about us this morning? Would you examine yourself? Is that love in your life? You say, well, Wayne, it sure is because I can tell you this, this, and this. No, it's not because you just failed the test. <laughs> I'm not so sure you're aware of the love when it's there or that people around you are aware that the love is there.
Because when God's doing it, rarely does he ever share. His, he doesn't. No, not rarely. He never shares his glory with any man. So he may not ever let you see it, but he'll let others see it in you. That's the key. That's the Christian witness right there. In a closing example, the thing that encourages me about Corinth is as dark as it was, as dark as it was in Corinth, because flesh ran rampant, and that's always breeds darkness. There's always light in there with God's people. There's always some light. And Paul is not bringing the light. Paul is just turning it up so that they can see what really is there and what really isn't there. I love that. I love that. For the believer, we've been made light. We may have dampened that light by the areas of our flesh, etc. But when the Word of God comes along, it just takes that handle and turns it up. And then we can see what we need to see. We couldn't see it in the darkness. Paul is just simply illuminating what needs to be illuminated so they can see what's going on. An illustration came to my mind of that, and it's such an encouraging thing to me. I was down last week with Lance Hartsfield in uh, Dilly, Texas. You say, where's Dilly, Texas? It's about 70 miles south of San Antonio. It's in the middle of nowhere is where it is. But I, you remember Lance. Lance used to be here. We put him through our Timothy school. He, precious fellow, he married and, and while, he, while he was here, he was single for a while, then he got married. And then he went to Southwestern Seminary, pastored a church outside of Dallas, and now he's been at this church almost six years. And so one of the reasons I wanted to go, I like to go and encourage him, just be around him. Plus the deer hunting is great down there. No, but I love Lance. Lance has started working with the Border Patrol. Now he's not a border, he's not an officer. But as a believer and as a pastor there, he has a lot of his members that are on the Border Patrol. Now, the Border Patrol, they patrol the Mexican-Texas border for wetbacks, and that's what they call the Mexicans that are trying to escape Mexico and come into our country. And one of the ways that they, they go about doing what they do to find them, and it was so intriguing to me, and by the way, they're, they're right now making the decision in the national government to make Lance the chaplain of all the Border Patrol in the South Texas area, which is going to give him a tremendous ministry to these guys he can ride with for eight hours at night. Boy, they really open their hearts up to you. But he said, Wayne, they've got the most interesting thing. He said, we would love this for deer hunting. I said, what are they? He said, night vision binoculars. <laughs> hey, would you, you need this in the daytime, but this would be great at night. <laughs> and he says, you put these night vision things on, and he says, they put you in a room that has absolutely no light, and you put it on, and you can, he said, actually, I can stand 12 feet away from something, and, if, and if, uh, if I didn't need my glasses, I could have read something in a book. That's how bright they make everything look when they wear these night vision glasses. He says, when, they, when the wetbacks will come in, they'll jump a train, but when it crosses the border, and of course the border patrol is going to check the train, they all just take off. They bail out of the train, and they go over and hide in the bushes. And he said, you can be sitting there watching them do it in the darkest of night. And he said, as soon as the train starts up again, here they come and they try to grab that train. And the ones that can grab it think they're going to get away. Don't know that 10 miles down the road they're going to be stopped again and this time they're going to get nailed. But he said, it's those night vision glasses. But he said, Wayne, there was something amazing to me. And I said, what's that? He said, in the blackest, darkest night, when you look at people with these night vision glasses, they cast a shadow. He said, I would have never believed that. He said, Wayne, in the midst of the darkness, there's still enough light to cast a shadow. Oh, thank God. It was dark in Corinth, but there was still enough light. And the Apostle Paul didn't come and bring it. He came and turned it up so that those distorted, confused, upside-down believers 
could get their feet back on the ground, attach themselves to Christ, and be about the purposes that God has for them. So there's hope in this book. There's hope in this book. But I'll tell you what they show us is how quickly our flesh can distort anything that God does. Only way to make sure it's God is the love He produces. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.